0: Moving on, let's turn to uh, Jonah chapter 3. So you want to go to the Old Testament. Open your Bible in the middle and go right. If you get to Malachi or Matthew, you've gone a little too far. Jonah's right next to Hosea. So it's right there in the middle of the 12 minor prophets. I'll give you a moment to find that. Okay. Okay. All right, I'm told we have over 40 people uh, watching today, so welcome to you. I'm glad you're here. Jonah is a different book. Obviously, I've, I've said the last couple of weeks, it's not your typical Advent uh, series, and uh, today will be no different. So let's turn to Jonah chapter three, starting at verse one. As always, listen carefully as this is the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. (coughs) And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violent... Excuse me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it this Advent. Thank you for giving us the scriptures, and as always, thank you for making us your people. Once again, we thank you especially for the book of Jonah. We thank you for this prophet, this extraordinary word, this amazing story that you have given us in this message, that you gave him to preach to Nineveh. Give us hearts and minds to believe and understand all that you have written. Help us to know you better and love you more through Jonah chapter 3. And so we pray, have mercy on us this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen let me ask you a question. What would you do if you were Jonah? At the end of chapter 2, the last thing we read was Jonah 2.10, which says, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Your fish vomit. You probably look like fish vomit. So what's your next move? Well, first you'd probably find a hose and clean yourself off. Um, After all, you've been living in the guts of a great fish for three days and three nights. But what then? Well, if you lived in today's world, you'd probably start a reality show, do some interviews, Share your story with the world. Call it the Jonah show. You had a spiritual experience in the belly of the whale. You might start your own church right there on the beach. Call it Church of the Whales. Or since you're now a celebrity hipster pastor, how about just the whale? Or how about this? Perhaps you're an entrepreneur. You might start a water park. Those are really popular. You make a lot of money on those hot summer days. You could call it Jonah's Water World. You could have one of those fancy five-story tube slides and call it the People Projectile. Or a really fast water slide, you could call it the Vomit Comet. We haven't gotten to the play area for the kids, which of course would be the regurgitation station. Think about it. You could be pretty creative, man who spent time in the belly of a great fish. That's how people would respond to it today. We would try to somehow use this experience to catapult us to fame and fortune. So back to our main question, what would you do if you were Jonah? Probably none of those things, hopefully. I imagine you're so terrified by your experience that at this point, you're just going to wait for God to tell you what to do next. And in Jonah's case, he didn't have to wait very long. But it doesn't seem like he got the word from the Lord that he wanted to get. Because now God resends the prophet. He resends the prophet. If you're following along, if you have the outline, um, which you can get on our website, um, that would be the first blank uh, there in your outline. God resends the prophet. And when we look at this, compare the beginning of Jonah 1 with the beginning of Jonah 3. And you'll see striking similarities. Almost identical language is used. Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2, says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. Well, now that Jonah's back on dry land, we're in Jonah 3, verses 1 and 2, And he says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. The same call comes a second time to Jonah. He's commissioned for the same ministry. Remember what happened the first time? Jonah defected, essentially. He abandoned his post. He'd run away, betraying the sacred trust given to him as a prophet of the Lord, and as a preacher of the word of God, and he sailed for Tarshish, which was going west, instead of going to Nineveh, which was going east. But now he's back again, and he's chastened, and he's compliant. The similarities between the beginning of Jonah 1 and the beginning of Jonah 3 are entirely intentional. It's as though the Lord has hit the reset button. We're back at the beginning once again. Having saved Jonah from death, God now recommissions him for ministry. And we read, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. When asked which verse best summarizes the whole of scripture, uh, Dr. Ed Clowney of Westminster Seminary famously pointed to Jonah 2.9 that says salvation belongs to the Lord. I know uh, Brian Chapel, now the stated clerk of the PCA, would answer the same question with the same verse. And in terms of one verse standing on its own, I'm not sure you could come up with a better answer. However, when the entire context is taken into consideration, you might argue that a better uh, summation of the scripture comes two verses later in the first verse for our text, uh, of our text for today, Jonah 3.1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. We can say that Jonah 3.1 sums up scripture. Because if you think about it, the Jonah story mirrors the whole biblical story in some significant ways. In the beginning, God created uh, the world through his word. Adam and Eve received this good creation brought about through his word. And like Jonah, they lived in the peace and security of God's presence. The land in which they lived functioned as sort of a little temple garden. It was part temple to the Lord, part garden. And their mission was to extend the boundaries of the garden over the face of the earth. They're called to bring the order of the temple garden to the entire world. Just as Jonah was called to bring the message of God's order and justice to this foreign nation. And though Adam and Eve didn't experience immediately uh, physical death when they rebelled against God's word, they were driven from God's presence. And no, they weren't in the belly of a great fish, but they were banished from the temple garden. This is their going down, their uh, death, just as it was Jonah's. And God would have been perfectly just to just end the story there. He's under no obligation to speak Uh, to speak his creative word uh, the first time, let alone the second time. God could have destroyed his creation. Yet in his grace and his mercy, he established a plan to inaugurate a new creation. And how is this new creation to come about? The same way the old creation came into existence through the word. Inexplicably, the word came to mankind a second time. No, the spoken word didn't come, but the same word, the word by which God had created the world, came again, this time in flesh and blood. It came in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he had a clear mission to extend the temple presence of God over the face of the whole earth. God sent his incarnate word into the world so that all things might be new, that salvation might explode over the face of the earth. And this mission is what the word of the Lord coming to Jonah the second time is all about. The rest of Jonah 3 tells the story of a foreign people, including their king, uh, repenting and believing God. And to Jonah's surprise and dismay, God has plans for the world that don't end with Israel. So, what brought all this about? Was it Jonah's devotion and his zeal for the gospel? Not exactly. Because God gave Jonah a message where God rebukes the people. Verses 3 and 4, God rebukes the people. It says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, back in chapter 1, as the call of God came to Jonah, we saw Jonah arise in order to flee from the presence of the Lord. This time, the same call comes to Jonah a second time, and now, verse 3, he arises to go to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So far, so good. Jonah, at last, begins to obey God. But if you know the rest of the story, you know there's good reasons to doubt that Jonah's actually changed all that much. He's not really repentant yet. But that's not really our concern in chapter 3. The story focuses our attention not on the condition of Jonah's heart or on the quality of his obedience as much as it does on the character of God who relents from wrath and shows mercy. Even when his people don't get it, Even when his people don't obey as they ought to, he showers his mercy on them. He prefers mercy to judgment. Do you believe that? That God prefers mercy to judgment. Which means it's really ironic when you look at this uh, book that it's actually all about Nineveh. That would be near Mosul in modern-day Iraq. And in that day, Nineveh is the greatest city the world has then seen. And at the end of verse 3, we're told that in order to walk through the city, it took three days. And you can average person can walk 20 miles in a day. That means this city, the, the, the width of it is at least 60 miles. That's a huge city. It's bigger than the boundary of any city in America right now. uh, I actually looked it up. The largest city in America landmass-wise is Jacksonville, Florida. It doesn't have the most people by any stretch, but it's the biggest square uh, miles-wise. You remember how this story started? It started when Jonah was told to go to Nineveh. And if you remember, he replied, essentially, I don't want to go anywhere near Nineveh. And he headed out in the opposite direction. The very name of Nineveh would send chills up the spine of every Israelite and every Canaanite and every Edomite and every Ammonite and every other ite in the region. Nineveh is the capital city of the evil empire of Assyria the Isis of the 8th century B.C. And by the time Jonah started his prophecy, the Assyrians had about 100 years' worth of atrocities under their belts. It's not enough for them to do barbaric things. The Assyrians had to write those deeds down and etch the images in stone, which is how we know about them today. They bragged about their evil deeds what would be nightmares for some people were sweet dreams for the Assyrians no nightmares for them they saw their atrocities as heroic and they loved recording them these ancient Assyrian records brag about live dismemberment that often included leaving one hand of a person attached so they could shake it before the person died The Assyrians made parades of heads, required the friends of the deceased to carry them around on poles. They stretched out their enemies on tent stakes, yanked out their tongues, and flayed them like fish. One of their king's records, he brags about his atrocities. He says, I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I captured many troops alive. I cut off their arms and hands. I cut off others' noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. These are a wicked, evil people. The book of Nahum tells us that they respected neither age nor sex and followed a policy of killing babies and young children so they wouldn't have to take care of them. Nineveh has no shame, no conscience, no moral compass, and no compassion. And every nation around them, including Israel, feared them, hated them, knew it was probably only a matter of time before the Assyrians broke down their gates. The fact that Jonah wanted to stay clear of Nineveh would have seemed a wise decision to everyone in the region. Nobody would question Jonah's sanity for not going. They'd be questioning God's sanity for sending him. Nineveh was an invulnerable fortress. Military might, economic might, cultural might. Nobody in their right mind would think about besieging the city of Nineveh, let alone trying to capture it. You can't even get an army around it. Who had an army that could stretch around the circumference of this, the text says, exceedingly great city. But the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And God decides not just to besiege this city, but to sack it. And he sends an army of one. And even though Jonah let the Ninevites know that forgiveness was possible, that's not the main thrust of his preaching. The summary of the, uh, that the text gives us of his sermon is eight words. I've never preached an eight-word sermon in my life. You know, I even teach my students to repeat all their most important things and their key words, you know. And I've been told I'm somewhat redundant, which means I repeat myself a lot and say the same thing over and over again, like I'm doing right now. But the summary, the eight word prophetic message, the only message in the whole book from the prophet, he didn't say, Yet 40 days in Nineveh might be overthrown. He said, Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that's what Jonah wants. The word overthrown is the same word God used when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Jonah is preaching literal fire and brimstone. And he enjoyed preaching wrath. We will see he does it with glee, not tears. He couldn't wait for God's hammer to fall on these people. These are the most evil people in the known world at the time. He can't wait for God's judgment. But much to his dismay, that's not what happens. Surprisingly, God revives the people. Look at verses 5 through 8. God revives the people. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king is admitting that these are a violent people. And to Jonah's shock, when he preaches this message, the people don't laugh at him, nor do they attack him. The entire city responds in faith. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. The word repent literally means to turn, and it occurs four times in verses 8 through 10. And that's the striking central message of this passage. Against all expectations, this powerful, violent city of Nineveh puts on sackcloth, which is a sign of repentance. And they did so, end of verse 5, from the greatest of them to the least, from the top to the bottom of the social spectrum. How could something like this happen? Now, historians have pointed out that at about the time of Jonah's mission, Assyria had experienced a series of famines, plagues, revolts, and riots. Any of that sound familiar? all of which were seen as omens of worse things to come. Some have argued this was God's way of preparing the ground for Jonah. The state of affairs would have made both rulers and subjects unusually attuned to the message of this visiting prophet. So there is some sociological explanation for this response and Such movements towards God always have some social aspects since we live in a particular place, at a particular uh, time, in a particular culture. Nevertheless, none of those factors can fully explain this level of repentance. There is nowhere else that this level of repentance has been recorded. This would be the equivalent of every man, woman, and child in the entire metro D.C. area, repenting and putting on sackcloth. The whole sort of DMV area. Go out 50 miles from the center of D.C. in every direction. I can imagine what that would be like. The late French theologian Uh, Jacques Elluel, um, was amazed by this text. And he wrote, Nineveh, with its holy warlike orientation, accuses itself of violence. Verse 8. Nineveh, proud of its power and invincibility, ceases to be itself when it thus humbles itself. What kind of ministry brings about this remarkable result Jonah has been sent to the worst of the worst. And he's hoping for judgment. And they repent. The text says they believed God. Now some commentators jump to the conclusion uh, that Jonah preached salvation through faith and the city's response was a great revival. And there's some truth to that. Uh, Other uh, scholars conclude that we should emulate Jonah by providing social services aimed at overcoming violence rather than doing evangelism and there's probably some truth to that. However Jonah didn't go to Nineveh to do social work. He preached the threat of divine judgment in God's name and he did it loudly. And what actually happened doesn't easily fit into these sort of revival and justice categories. And yet the revival and justice that happens in Nineveh is a direct result of a preaching ministry that explicitly proclaimed the wrath of the biblical God. It's hard to imagine the ministry that happened in Nineveh. Think about it. Usually those who are most concerned about justice issues don't speak all that clearly about God's judgment on those who don't do his will. On the other hand, those who uh, most loudly preach repentance aren't usually known for demanding justice for the oppressed. And nevertheless, this book, this text, encourages both. In this instant, God seeks social reform through his prophet, demanding a change in the Ninevites' violent behavior. Yet he also directs that the city be told about a God of wrath who will punish sin. Once again, Jacques uh, Elluel writes, Jonah did not become free to select for himself what he would say. He did it to tell them, uh, he didn't do it to tell them about his experiences. He didn't decide the content of his preaching. He says, thus our witness is fast bound to the word of God. The greatest saint can say nothing of value unless it is based solely on God's word. Without understanding the wrath of God, it's impossible to fully understand why so many societies and empires and institutions and lives break down. Referring to a parallel passage in Isaiah 9, the Old Testament scholar uh, Alec Mocher He wrote that in a world created by a good God, evil and injustice are inherently self-destructive. The resulting social disintegration expresses God's wrath. He presides over the cause and effect processes built into creation so they serve as an expression of his holy rule over all the earth. That is to say that God has created the world so that when you have cruelty to people, when you have exploitation, when you have oppression, they have natural disintegrative consequences that are a manifestation of God's anger towards evil. And therefore, to work against injustice and to call people to repentance before God, theologically work together. It's a both and, not an either or. And as Jonah preaches the word the Lord gives him, the people are profoundly convicted of their sin and they begin to repent. They're repenting. Remember, he calls them out because of the evil that come before the Lord. He's called them out because of their violence. And they repent. And then the most surprising thing happens. God Responds to the people. Verse 10. God responds to the people. Actually, we'll start at the second part of verse 8. Verse 8, there's the part of the king's prayer, and he says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, now we get God's response. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So the Nunavites cry out to God, and he hears them, and he answers them. Notice the content of the prayer the king calls for in verses 8 and 9 corresponds to the content of God's response in verse 10. Verse 8, he says, Let everyone turn from his evil way. and verse 10... God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so we may not perish. Verse 10, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them and he did not do it. God conforms his response to the requests of these repentant pagans. It's amazing. And the reality is it should be wonderfully Reassuring to us. Even the Ninevites' prayers take hold of the mercy of God when they respond to his word in repentance and faith. Even the phenomenally evil Ninevites. The Lord doesn't turn repentant people away. However, wicked and wayward they may be. If they come to him seeking mercy, he doesn't turn them away. Not Ninevites, not you, not me, not anyone who comes seeking mercy. The Bible tells us that Christ died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. That's the good news here. But if you think about it, it's an amazing irony. It's one of these delicious ironies with which the book of Jonah is laced. Jonah serves as an object lesson designed to teach him and us that God loves to show mercy. He loves to show mercy. I mean, if he saves this unrepentant, wayward prophet, will he not also save an unrepentant, wayward city when it turns to him for pardon? The Lord deals with Nineveh the same way he deals with Jonah. He doesn't have double standards, one for us and one for everybody else. He doesn't deal with you as though you're a special case, uh, neither so bad he can't shower grace on you or so good that he won't discipline you. He deals with you the same way he deals with others. The same grace he gave you, he gives to others. God is as free to bring others into his kingdom as he is to bring you into his kingdom. (coughs) I mean, it's as if he's telling Jonah, you know, you're no better than the Ninevites. And if I have mercy on you, can I not relent from disaster against them? Now that they've turned to me for pardon, Is not God free to show mercy on whomever he wills? He should show us how helpless our own case is apart from the intervention of God. Why then should you be reluctant to serve him in reaching others, whoever they may be? Maybe the word of the Lord is coming to you a second time a word of mercy after you've run away, after your fall, after your sin. But please see from this passage that to whomever God shows mercy, he also calls to serve him. He will do that with Nineveh. And then later in the scriptures, he's going to deal with them Uh, when they serve him and when they don't serve him. Grace isn't kept to yourself. The compassion of God also brings with it the commission of God. The message of compassion, that God is a God who shows mercy, is also a commission. For the God who shows mercy is the God who sends out the merciful. God isn't done with you yet. As he shows you Mercy it's so we might use you in showing mercy to others. He shows mercy to make us merciful. The grace you're given is the grace you share. That's Jonah's story. And it's one of the ways that the Old Testament says Merry Christmas. Jonah is a Christmas story. It's the Old Testament's John 3.16 which for those who don't remember says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. However, it's also important to include the next two verses because they not only provide the context for John, they also provide the context for Jonah. And they read, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It fits right in with Jonah 3. Know you're condemned or not condemned. It's because you believe or you do not believe. And Jonah 3 is one of the clearest statements in the entire Old Testament that God loves all people, including bad people, including wicked people, and he wants to save them. As 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You think about it, it's a story that's telling us that Christmas is on the way. It's the story echoed by the angels' announcement to the shepherds that we heard earlier when the Paganis read uh, the lighting of uh, the Advent wreath. Luke 2. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. Jonah's story declares that all the people of the angel's song even includes people like the Ninevites. That's why Jonah is a Christmas story. God's the main character in the story, not the Ninevites and not Jonah. God responds to Nineveh's repentance and saves them instead of destroying them. This is God doing a God thing, seeking and saving the lost, just like he did when he sent Jesus to be born of Mary, to be our Savior, Matthew 1.21, for he will save his people from their sins. Just like he did when Jesus died on the cross, to provide forgiveness of sins. God is true to his own character, faithful to his own attributes. And in this story, no sinner is too vile, no sinner is too far gone, no sinner is beyond the reach of God's long arm of salvation. That's just who God is. Finding joy when the lost sheep is found and even when one sinner repents and is saved, God is willing to go to extreme measures, sending storm and fish to spare a rebellious preacher and get him to that lost, wicked Nineveh no matter how much trouble it was or how much inconvenience it caused. And that tells us that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day that the word of the Lord came to you a second time. Today is the day that God is showing you Mercy in order to make you merciful. That's why Jonah's a Christmas story. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Lord, we thank you for Jonah. We can see ourselves in his life. And truth be told, Lord, there are people that we don't love very much. Some of them might be here this morning. And we weren't planning on talking to them. Lord, remind us of your mercy and then make us merciful. Make us ready to give them the grace that you've given us and through that teach us to love you more than we do and to serve you more than we do. Bless us, we pray. Write these things on our hearts. Help us to flee to the one greater than Jonah that we may know his grace and mercy and then use us as instruments of mercy to others this Advent For we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive God's blessing from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God bless you. We'll see you next week.